oh my God, we're live. We're talking about where you were during the pandemic last year. Just kidding. <laughs> Let's do some quick introductions. As you know, I'm Ray, uh, awesome uh, co-host Vala, our awesome producer L, and more importantly, we'll do some quick intros of our guests and uh, one of our guests will be popping in in a little bit as well. So let's start with Rachel and then we'll go to Byron. Where are you calling in from and what are you talking about? Rachel? Hi, I'm Rachel Friesen. I'm the head of community and advocacy at PagerDuty. I'm coming to you from Portland, Oregon, and I'm really excited to talk about leading through a crisis, what it's like as a woman leader in tech, that type of thing. Thank you so much for being here. Byron, what are you talking about and where are you calling from? I'm uh, in from Austin, Texas, and I'm talking about my new book. It's called Wasted. How we waste time, money, resources, and what we can do about it. Very, very cool. And we're talking about who are you calling in from and what are you talking about? Grant, you're here. So you're our first guest. So let's jump in. What are you talking about? Right. Yeah. What are you talking about today and who are you calling in from? So You're talking to me, Ray? Yeah. Yeah, Grant. What are you talking about today and where are you calling in from? This is the Wait, pre-show well, before the live. So. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah, I am uh, calling in from San Francisco right now. So uh, good to see you guys. Uh, we're going to talk wonderful. about the future. Yeah, good to see you guys. We're going to talk about the future work. We're going to talk about continuous planning, how companies can course correct their businesses faster in a period of uh, uncertainty. I'm really looking forward to it. Good to see you, Vala. And hello, Ellie and everyone yeah. else there. All right, very cool. Well, let's go do the honors, L. Um, you do the countdown. And while you're doing that, I'm going to say thanks to our sponsors, uh, Robots and Pencils. Here we go. All right, three, two, one. Hello and now welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guest, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV and we'll do our best to answer. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the founder and CEO of Constellation Research. He is the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business and breaking news, his new book, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, will be out July of this year. He is a regular television business and technology contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, and Bloomberg News. He's a global sought-after keynote speaker, and in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Always humbled by your intros. Thanks, Vala, my awesome co-host. More importantly, if you think about Vala, follow his tweets. Um, he's the most inspirational person, followed by CEOs, CIOs, CMOs, all executive leaders across the world. And if you're looking for inspiration, ideas, and innovation, that's Vala. And of course, he's a keynote speaker talking tons of clients across the Salesforce universe and beyond. And more importantly, uh, he's also an author himself. But it's not about us. It's our awesome guests that we have every week. And who do we have first today? We have an exceptional CEO as our first guest, Grant Halloran. He's the CEO of Planful. And uh, Grant has over 20 years of senior leadership experience in the enterprise software space, a career to date marked by positions where he drove high growth and global expansions. Prior to joining Planworth, uh, Planful in 2019, Grant was the EVP and Chief Commercial Officer at OmniSci, a venture-backed big data analytics company, where he oversaw marketing alliances and customer success. During his two-year two tenure, OmniSide tripled in revenue, tripled in revenue and employees. Before OmniSide, he served as the executive team in Anaplan, as well as Infor, following Infor's acquisition of Orbis, where Grant was CEO and co-founder. You can follow Grant on Twitter at Grant Halloran, G-R-A-N-T-H-A-L-L-O-R-A-N. Welcome back, Grant, to the Shark TV. Bala, thank you so much. And I have to echo uh, what Ray just said. I, I find your tweets 
uh, on uh, fantastic uh, array array of sunshine most days and uh, and and Ray Ray I've been really enjoying your stuff on Twitter uh, we have one more thing in common I've discovered through through this past twelve months we like the same food but you but you are way you <laughs> you're a way better cook than me <laughs> no 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 that's uh, secretly that's my other half uh, she's much better at that uh, no, oh, come on well you're no, taking no, all the credit you're taking time. all the credit with the tweets I I want to see more credit. We'll start putting credits up there. But hey, you yeah. know, that's that's one of the interesting things, right? We're all home more. We're all doing more things, you know, in, inside our environments around ourselves. And, you know, it's been interesting thinking about what companies are doing as they're looking at remote and hybrid work environments, right? We're cooking more. We're engaged more. People are actually, you know, kind of in their own elements. Um, what What's this going to do? Like, is the workplace going to come back? Are people going to drive out to offices and, you know, hang out in big city centers and get on to commutes? Or are we going to go back to suburban office parks? People kind of come in only when the big thing happens and collaborate. Like, what changes in this future of work? And what are you starting to see, especially, you know, given your role as a CEO and more importantly, what your clients are up to? Yeah, well, we're making predictions of the future, so we can we can only uh, we have to contextualize it that way. So, might just give your audience a little context. So, Planful, uh, we're about three hundred and forty employees. So, so my perspectives come from from what we're thinking about ourselves, but also we serve uh, just coming up on a thousand organizations that I call the heart of the economy. So, listening to them and talking to them, and it's very different depending on where you are. Ray, I'll contextualize this on um, more from a knowledge worker perspective. Um, I think the it's fair to say the five day uh, a week commute is over. Uh, you know, what? if uh, where else am I going to yeah, listen to my NPR? I mean, come on. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, dude. It's over. Podcast. And if there are, yeah, I really believe if there are companies out there that think that that's going to be the case, then the, the the beauty of America here and most of the world is it's free free labor markets and, and the market's going to dictate that, right? We Last year was the biggest unintended experiment um, I think that's ever happened in, in knowledge worker labor, right? So if you asked all the CEOs around the world, hey, uh, we're going to take all your knowledge workers and we're going to send them home and we'll see what happens. Um, let's do that for 12 or 18 months, right? I don't think you would have had a lot of signups. Um, nope. Nope. So, so we've learned a lot. Um, a lot of it has been crisis mode. What did we learn? Firstly, we learned, yes, knowledge workers can be super productive. Um, in that period of time. Um, but we also learned that work, you know, the bifurcation of work, right? Anything that's operational, that's routine in nature, you do not need a whole bunch of people sitting around in a, in a room looking at an operational KPI dashboard. That's something that you just do every week and you're taking a few actions mm -hmm. from the insights. That's something that can easily be done from home in these, this sort of mode that we're in right now. Um, but if you're trying to do anything that's inventive, creative, right? You're trying to redesign a process, you're trying to envision a new product, whatever it is that exercises that kind of component and it requires collaboration, I absolutely believe that has to be done in person. The other, the other aspect I think that we've learned, I certainly have learned, is that um, hiring is very difficult to get, it's, it's difficult already. <laughs> it's like golf, it's a game of misses, right? And uh, you, you, you're trying to figure out like, how do I minimize the, the, the impacts of my misses here? And so, so it's hard, you know, I've had personal interviews with, you know, senior folks that I've been looking to bring into the company and, and I've liked them on, on, the, on the Zoom calls and whatnot. And, and I've connected with them. I thought this person's terrific, they're amazing. And I've met them in person. And my point of view has changed pretty quickly. So, <laughs> so, so polite. You're so polite. So, this has happened so, a so, lot. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think the answer here is like we need we need to be very 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 intentional in thinking about like the nature of the work. Um, so the physical workplace in my in workplace, in my opinion, is going to to stick around because we need to create that physical space that people can come together. 
The final thing I, uh, for, the, for those things that I just talked about, and then the final thing I believe is that we have to be very careful. We, we've been in a crisis and the decisions you make during a crisis are very different to one, once you emerge through recovery and then you get to more of a steady state going forward. Um, the culture of businesses, I believe that, that the foundation, right, the bedrock of culture of, of great companies is built on bonded relationships. And as yes. we had many of those, great companies had those first going into the crisis. So we were able to manifest the productivity we wanted because it existed. But, you know, most companies turn over 10, 20% of their employees every year, right? So what's a, what's a culture going to look like in one year's time, three years' time, five years' time? Are you going to have the, the, the strength of that, those relationships at the bedrock of your company? And what will that mean for your ability to create an event and, and gain market share and do all the things that you need to do to improve your company? I agree. I agree with your insights. And I also believe that, yeah, the traditional nine to five, uh, five days in the office, um, is, is gone, uh, but there'll be a, you know, a hybrid and flexibility will be there. There was a wonderful Forbes article recently written featuring your thought leadership. And it was really advice to CEOs for 2021 and beyond. And, you know, great, great article. I, you know, I, I uh, you know, uh, advise our, our readers are, and to, to check out the article, but you said, look at uh, let go of, uh, um, uh, of competitor obsession and ego. You talked about pick up uh, the skills of continuous planning, budget for hybrid working, prioritize employee wellness, and you talked about how your company's doing that, and build connections. Uh, so I want to, uh, you know, talk a little bit about how can companies assess this cost benefit of remote work, such as tech reliability, productivity, flexibility, as well as employee safety and morale, because one of your takeaways for the CEOs was really, you know, uh, prioritize wellness. Uh, physical and mental wellness. So can you talk about how companies can assess this cost benefit and really plan for this next normal, which is going to be vastly different in 2019? I think you, uh, we preach continuous planning, right? And, and, you know, continuous planning is about having a stance, an operating stance, an ability to uh, course correct your business far more, far more quickly than you have in the past, all right? And, and there's a whole bunch of factors that go go into that. Um, but but at the foundation of it is is kind of an experimental mindset, right? Test and learn. It's very difficult for um, companies to know with with any sort of you know, accurate, accuracy about the longer term. Um, so I would encourage a test and learn approach, experiment as much as possible, but be very honest with your employees, right? So for instance, I have been surprised that some companies have come out and said, hey, we're going fully remote forever. And, you know, that to me is, uh, I don't know, there, there, there may be unintended implications for that. So. I would encourage people to be be experimental, but be very honest with employees. It's like we're gonna we're gonna experiment with different modes, and we're gonna sort of figure out um, what makes sense, right? Because any model that you come up with today, the one thing I, I run a planning company. I mean, <laughs> all of our clients are trying to do this stuff. It's like most <laughs> predictions are wrong, right? So so you need to be able to to, to have an operating sense to course correct that more more quickly. Um, just on the morale side of things, I'll share a quick story, Vela. The the um, morale is so important to the ability to generate performance in a company. And, and it's, it's, it's one of these softer issues and people kind of you know, categorize it as a HR or people culture kind of thing. But I actually think that the nexus between people's morale and the ability to perform is so strong, so tight, that it can't be underestimated. Um, I was talking with a friend who runs a business unit of, of a sizable business out in Europe. And he was telling me about all the things he wanted to do to get more productivity and efficiency. So that, he was transforming this team and, and everything else. And he laid out his whole plan on the phone to me and he said, you know, Grant, what do you think? And, and it was very sensible. 
Very sensible, isn't it? Yeah, I couldn't really pick any holes in the logic behind it. So I just paused for a minute and I said one question that he hadn't really asked. I said, how's the morale of the team? And that, that just stopped him in his tracks, right? Wow, and, and I said to him, if you don't know the morale of the team, like if their morale is low, right, because they've been going through this crisis and it's in a, a multidimensional crisis for all of us, you know, if their morale is low, if you go to them and say, hey, we're going to do all these things, we're going to change all these things, we're going to be more productive, all they hear is you suck. That's all they hear, right? Yep, yep. So we need. that's why we need to focus mostly, uh, firstly, on the morale of our people. And that's what about those bonded relationships and everything else. That's why I bridge it back to we have to get people back together, physical locations, these events that the Constellation runs, for instance, every year. Like what an amazing opportunity, the Dreamforce events, right? the events we run. Getting people together has a mag an absolute magical effect on business performance. You know, it's it's definitely true. I mean, we we've got healthcare CIOs that are telling us that you know, like you know, they they've been beatered, battered all the way around. You can come up with any word for it, and they're basically trying to figure out, like, you know, like you know, how, how to improve the morale of their teams, right? I mean, it's it's all across the board, right? I mean, they've been trying to help. They're getting first the patients love them, then the patients now hate them. Now it's like you know, everybody on the front line is getting crushed, and so you know, they're they're trying to figure out how to get morale back up and, and be able to figure things uh, that are important. So on your end, I mean, it's like what what are the attributes? I mean, I'm, if I put a financial planning and analysis platform together, like what are the attributes that are needed to go figure out what this future of work is? Because you touched on a number of them. And as someone's putting these models together, probably thinking like, hey, what do I have to measure? What do I have to figure out? What do I have to plan for? How do I weight these kind of things? You nailed it with that question. You got to start with the concepts, right? So, you know, what are all of the things that, what are all these factors that actually will drive um, performance variability in the business a couple of examples for instance you know productivity drivers um we have we have a you know team big teams here in the us we also have a fantastic team in hyderabad in india um they have not been able to to get together right so what is the velocity in r d going to look like uh in the future right mm -hmm. velocity is a factor and you can you can model that in um, so we need to understand like what's our quality control going to be like you know velocity is so important because we need to to, to understand like can we bring new products to market in the timeframes that that the business drivers <laughs> the business folks want want the business uh, you know from the business um, sales performance to what extent are we going to be impacted by ability or inability to um, to go on on site right is it going to affect our win rates those sorts of things marketing campaigns there is uh, the the challenge I think in a lot of this is is you can model the heck out of this stuff, right? And mm -hmm. a lot of it is a little qualitative, right? So I would say that mm -hmm. you know, when you're launching a new product, what do you think is the most important factor in success in a new product? Okay, is it the time? You know, is it is it like, did you get the, the timing, the luck of, of timing right? Mm -hmm. Did you get all this sort of stuff right? All these other things? No, it's just the quality of the product. Like, the, the you know, were you able to address a need in the market and, and find some sort of degree of d disruption uh, with that product, right? So that's a quality issue more than anything. So I would encourage people to understand that modeling these things has to be done, but you also have to temper that with a lot of judgment and experimentation as you go forward, because there are some factors here in uh, going forward that are very difficult to predict. Yeah, yeah. And I think about yeah, your okay. initial comment in that, you know, you have a digital engagement or the candidate they seem like a rock star. They answer the questions. The tone, sentiment, demeanor is great. And then you meet them in person, and you have additional contextual intelligence 
use all the senses that we typically use in the analog world, and you have potentially a difference of opinion. And even measuring morale, you know, you get a sense of if you're only in a decentralized digital only construct, your assessment of morale is what you see when we're on video. You don't see them walking to a meeting with their heads down. You don't see them not necessarily active in a meeting. You just don't see how they carry themselves. So again, you're missing that contextual intelligence to truly be able to assess morale and it makes it harder. So my question is when we think about adding and bolstering contextual intelligence in, in, in terms of financial planning and analysis, can you take us to the future? Will Will machine learning, deep learning, will AI help us bolster our planning where we can look at multiple dimensions and data points concurrently yeah, right. and really remove the blind spots that traditional tools provide to us today? What does FPNA look like five years from now? And will we really able to assess morale by understanding the digital presence of our stakeholders, employees, customers, partners, and others? Yeah, the the... Uh, machine learning and AI is uh, um, the next frontier of the continuum of automation. And, mm. um, you know, we've been on that journey for, for quite some time. Obviously, you know, the rise of software eating the world. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and Andreessen so, 10 years ago. Yeah, Andreessen yeah, yeah. 20 years ago. Who is that guy? Yeah. Yeah. And now AI guy. is eating software. I mean, you know, AI is writing. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And it's all, it's exactly, it's all part of the same thing. I mean, it, it's, it's the aspiration to um, liberate humans and the power of our incredible minds and the collective collaborative way in which we can, we can do that together um, to, to make better judgments and faster judgments and everything else. So I think, I think where it is right now, so you talk about five year horizon. Most of it is like just, we've just got to automate out the mundane, labor intensive, low value work. Um, we've already been on that journey so far, like in FPA cloud platforms. That's what it's all about. It's about streamlining or automating so that you can enable uh, finance people um, to do what they went to school for, which is to be analytical and be contributors to the business and, and help um, you know, business unit leaders drive better performance in their company. Um, you can't do that when you're sitting at three o'clock in the morning with your head buried, buried in a spreadsheet where you don't even know where the errors are, right? So that's that's crazy. So AI is helping a lot with that. We just actually just launched a product that, you know, captures human error before before it even gets past the the, the point of no return, right? So um, there's, there's there's all of that stuff happening, um, Vala, for sure. Um, overall, I would say if we sort of bring it up to a more kind of abstract or conceptual level. The, the FP&A function, finance and, and accounting function is evolving from being more of what I would call a service desk uh, type mm -hmm. mode where it's, you know, someone in the business has a question and, and it's just Q&A, 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 respond, respond, respond. And that's why these people are up, up at three o'clock in the morning, right? I'm asking questions yep. and they're you know, doing what they need and Ray's asking questions and whatnot. So, you know, Mark Benioff's <laughs> asking questions. It's, it's, it's just constant, right? So millions of people are trying to do this all the time. So you've got to evolve that service desk into uh, being an enabler. And the way you do that is you enable um, the business. And we talk about elevate the financial IQ of the business, right? Who has more who has more financial IQ than anyone in the company? It's the finance team. And how do you start to impart that on the rest of the organization? Technology, process, data, the right information in the right hands at the right time to help them drive that. And that enables you to truly become the business partner. Uh, there's no more just talking about it. This is the technology is there to enable it to happen. That's awesome. Gosh, hey, the language right. of business is finance. So what you're doing is actually allowing lines of business 
to understand how to operate and, and do it in, in, as a team sport. Um, as someone who ran engineering services and marketing, um, the challenge for me always as I jump from line of business to line of business is just to really always get grounded back to the language of business is finance. So anyway, yeah, it's, it's critically important. Go ahead, Ray. Sorry. No, no, it is. And, and, and real quick, I mean, you're right. FP&A is changing and the three A's are actually influencing it. Analytics, automation, and AI. And they're definitely changing how that lives uh, going forward. So this is great, Grant. Hey, thanks. We'd love to talk to you about food and wine recommendations next time. Uh, we know you, we know where you live. Uh, but more importantly, hey, we're here with Grant Holleran, CEO of Planful. You can follow him on Twitter at Grant Holleran, H-A-L-L-O-R-A-N, and check out what uh, Planful has out there. So thanks a lot for being on the show um, and uh, have a happy Friday. Well, Thank you, Chris. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Appreciate it. Be well. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Exceptionally bright CEO. Um, we always learn from him, and he's doing work growing his business. Uh, speaking of exceptional guests, uh, in my opinion, our next guest is probably the deepest thinker, Ray, we've had on our show. And we've interviewed about 700 folks. Uh, but every time I walk away uh, with Byron, he has expanded my mind to places it hasn't been before. Uh, Byron Reese is entrepreneur, author of Wasted. Uh, he is an Austin-based entrepreneur with a quarter century of experience building and running technology companies with multiple acquisitions and IPOs along the way. He's a recognized authority on AI and holds a number of technology patents. Uh, Byron is an award-winning author and speaker, as well as a futurist with a strong conviction that technology will help bring about new golden age of humanity. He has authored three books on technology, The Fourth Age, Infinite Progress, and the most recent of which was described by New York uh, Times as entertaining and engaging. His late, latest book is titled Wasted, How We Squander Time, Money, and Natural Resources and What We Can Do About It, which we're going to talk about during the next 20 minutes. You can follow him on Twitter at Byron Reese, B-Y-R-O-N-R-E-E-S-E. Welcome back, Byron, to Disrupt TV. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. <laughs> we love having you, and but Pleasure. we want to make sure that we set the context here. We're not talking about AI today. We're talking about something really different. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, and we're going to start by talking about the context of this. But you said something earlier that writing a book and writing this book was one of the hardest things you've ever done. And given how we know how smart you are, that's a huge statement. So talk a little about that. Set us, put us in the context of what's going on and well, why that's the case. Say it was one of the hardest things that I've ever done. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> so I, I, I wanted to write this book about waste. And it's 30 chapters. You know, there's a chapter about water and a chapter about electricity and a chapter about this, a chapter about that. And every one of them was like researching for a whole book. It was like every one of them. You, If, if you really want to understand water, you got to start in the ocean and evaporation. you got to go all the way. If you want to understand carbon dioxide, you got to start four and a half billion years ago. And so every one of these chapters was like just a monumental undertaking because I had to, I had to try to figure out how the system worked, how the system operated. Yeah, you took a systemic view. I mean, you condense multiple ecosystems, multiple business models, the understanding of the origin. You went to first principles on this book, which uh, was super impressive. So. Oh, well, thank you. It is, you know, the thing about thinking of, you know, when we think of waste, we often do it kind of in this isolated way, like, you know, paper or plastic. That would be kind of the beginning of the conversation. <laughs> when in reality, the real beginning of the conversation 
is to understand like, well, what happens at the very beginning and what happens? Because the thing about systems is they always have unintended consequences. And I found this was no different. And I want to be clear. I didn't write a book that tells anybody what they should do. Like there's not that. I didn't write a policy book that tells you, you know, these are laws we should pass. It's really just a book that says, if you want to understand how waste happens in the world, uh, you know, it's a science book, really. It's an economics book and, and the rest. And so that's how I tried to approach it to, to, to uh, you know, to broaden understanding more than uh, tell people what they should do. So, yeah, so this is extensive research, uh, often counterintuitive on waste in our lives, uh, how it affects Earth, how uh, uh, businesses we run, products we buy, where we live. Why did you, first of all, how did this topic enter uh, uh, your, 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 uh, you know, your, your third book, uh, Radar, because um, the last two books focus on technology, emerging technology and impact on humanity. So what, what made you think about waste as a topic? And then some of the surprises along the way. I mean, obviously, this was the hardest uh, uh, work assignment. So it means that you were, you had blind spots you must have had surprises tell us about the journey and, and why you yeah on this journey the, the biggest surprise was my appalling level of ignorance on all of these topics uh i mean just terrible like every time i would sit down to work on something like water or whatever i would be like i know a little bit about the topic i'm i, I know the basics at least and i would get into it and i knew nothing i knew nothing like everything i thought i knew I, was wrong and it was so, it was so, so Give us an example. Yes. Give us an example. I'm curious. Oh, wow. Um, Ray wants Ray wants his IQ tested. Byron, <laughs> ask him some questions. Put him on the spot. <laughs> okay. Well, um, sorry, you, Ray. I, I didn't mean a gallon, that. A gallon of gasoline weighs six pounds. Uh, yeah, eight pounds. A gallon of gasoline weighs eight, eight pounds. pounds. Yep, if yep. you burn it, how much CO2 do you think that creates? Wow, I would have no idea. <laughs> One pound or uh, twenty pounds? Oh, you got it. It's twenty pounds. It, it produces twenty pounds more okay. carbon because I mean because all of that carbon's binding with with oxygen. Yeah, so, you're binding the carbon and the exactly. hydrocarbons okay. then kick so together. With that, which is there's this like asymmetry between what you think you're doing and the way. So, so a gigaton is a uh, a gigaton is a billion tons. All right. Uh, and all the people in the world weigh about one gigaton, and all the cars and trucks in the world weigh about two gigatons. What oh, wow. would you guess the uh, the atmosphere of the Earth weighs? Uh, Mala, all you. <laughs> <laughs> Roughly, what does it feel like it would weigh? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Tennis. Six, five thousand gigatons. I don't know. Maybe just a million gigatons. Six million gigatons. Six million gigatons. Wow. So now, 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 guess wow. how many? How many of those That's gigatons like... are carbon dioxide? <laughs> yeah, I know. Guess how many of them are carbon dioxide? Six million floating up in there. How much do you think is CO two? No idea. So it's just thirty two hundred. It's just this tiny little bit of carbon, carbon dioxide compared to the whole. Wow. So before we came along. Uh, before the, the Industrial Revolution, as it were, we would the Earth gives off about 750 gigatons of carbon dioxide every year. And it absorbs 750 tons of carbon dioxide every year. 
And so the whole thing is like the earth emits just all the CO2 swamps and, and dead organisms and all of this. And then it absorbs it. It sequesters it in the oceans and all of that. And then we come along. This is just fascinating to me. We come along and we emit 40. That's what humans 40. do. We emit wow. 40. And then you say, and and the earth does us a solid. The earth, the earth absorbs half of that back. It can't absorb it all. Like we overwhelm the system. So we put an additional 20 gigatons up in the air every year. And there's only 3,200 to start with. And so you can actually see it climbing. You know, it was about 2,000, 250 years ago. Now it's 3,200. And you just see it go up 20 every year. And it would be nice to take some comfort that, well, it's not that much. And we're not really adding a lot. The earth puts out 750 and we only add 20. But but it's kind of like the body's temperature, right? Your body temperature is about 100 degrees. Raise it to 110 and you're dead. Um, and so you find all of these things like that, where these tiny little changes make these big wow. effects. Or, um, or how about, how about Amazing. I found this fascinating about recycling. recycling. These two professors, these two Boston University professors wrote this paper uh, called The Effect of Recycling Versus Trashing on Consumption. And this is fascinating. Like, here's the setup. You get a bunch of college kids and you tell them uh, you want them to come in and uh, the setup is there's four pitchers of juice, four pitchers of juice, and there's a big stack of cups, and there's a trash can. And you say to them, uh, we want you to test, e taste each juice and tell us which one is the best. And Ooh, so the Pepsi challenge one juice. of two things. They could either take one cup and keep refilling, and, or they could take four cups and try them all in a fresh cup. Yeah. And so on average, it worked out to like 2.2. Uh, cups on average because some people use one some people use one then then they got rid of the trash can and they put a recycle bin in there and the number shot way up the average shot way up because if they saw the recycle bin they would say oh it's going to be recycled i might as well consume more and so <laughs> oh my god you're like the freakonomics of waste here that's what it is they did it they said okay well let's try it let's try it with wrapping paper so they, they got these college students to come in. They gave them a book and said, wrap the book, tear off all the paper you need. Put a trash can there. They tear off a certain square footage of it, replace it with the recycle bin. They tear off more. And so you get, the, you, you kind of can't recycle your way out of consumption. And, and mentally, it's like that blue bin is sort of like, oh, it's okay if I consume. But if you really want to reduce waste, you yeah. kind of have to consume less. So the blue the blue bin these is are, these are some data points. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So these are some data points from the book Wasted. Uh, humans inhale or consume on average a hundred thousand pieces of plastics a year. Uh, Dutch are able to grow tomatoes with nineteen percent of the water and three percent of the chemicals used in U.S. agriculture. Eighty percent of donated clothes end up in landfills. The apparel industry emissions roughly triple of the entire aviation industry. And this last data point, which is mind-numbing, global hunger could be completely eliminated for an annual cost of about uh, $100 billion, a sum just under what we collectively spend on pet food. Yeah. When you're doing this research and you're capturing this, these just gobsmacked data points, when you, how did you know to cap your book? I mean, what, what did you... I mean, just I don't know when to stop, yeah. these well, uh, understandings. Well, uh, actually, yeah, I mean, a really uh, good question. I had 60 chapters I wanted to write in the book. I said, I'll write 60 chapters. It'll be 1,500 words each. Uh, 
I got through 30 chapters and none of them were 1500 words. Like they filled the whole book. Like there's a whole nother book's worth of stuff to write about. It, it goes on endlessly. Like the clothing thing. Um, the, if you take the, all of the money spent on clothing in the world and divide it by the number of people, it works out to about $300 per capita. So the average person in the world spends $300 a year on clothing in the West, in the West, the average person spends more than $300 a year on clothing that they never wear. Yeah. That they never wear. And that social media is doing this thing where nobody wants to be in the photos wearing the same clothes twice. And so the most cutting thing you can say to somebody is, oh, I always love you in that outfit. Okay. To be fair, I have 10 of these jackets. The one exception to that is there. Ray. I <laughs> haven't <laughs> seen Ray outside of that black jacket in five years. <laughs> I have 10 of these jackets. I'm okay, going right, to give you another one. Um, now, let me talk about water for just a second, because I think it's fascinating. Like, there's two things you have to know about water. The first is there's water stock and water supply, and they're completely yep. different things. So water supply is the rain, basically, that falls and fills the rivers. Water stocks are like the Great Lakes is what you have. Um, and what you want to do is use your supply and not your stock, right? Exactly. But, then, but then here's what's interesting is um, there's two ways, ways we use water. One is called... Uh, consumption and one's called withdrawal and consumption withdrawal is where you just take some out and you do something with it and then you pour it right back in and that doesn't really use any water it doesn't consume it uh per se consuming it is where it actually leaves you know like water in your lawn or something and so many of the things that we uh think about like to conserve water like a low flow toilet toilets don't actually consume any water they pull it out of the local river they clean it they run it through your your pipes, you flush the toilet, they clean it, they put it back in the river. It doesn't actually use any. And so, and then there's this, and, and the thing about water is it's all so regional. There are, you know, I, I have a story in the book about up in Oregon, uh, where your next guest is, there was this uh, video you can see online of this person allegedly peeing in a reservoir. And uh, the, the person in charge of the reservoir emptied all 38 million gallons of it out. What? Uh, yeah, just drained it all. I mean, this is a reservoir that has fish living in it, dead birds floating okay, in it, okay. all of that. But he was like, well, the quote in the book is, who would want to drink pee? Um, so, but if, if you're in Oregon, that's not really a tragedy. You just refill the reservoir. But in other parts of the world, that's like un, un, unimaginable. Unthinkable. So, yeah. Yeah. But so there's this now, this concept of virtual water. Can you guess what that is? So... A reporter uh, named Nathan Halverson uh, wrote this story about the, the Saudis. They, 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 Saudi Arabia was sitting on this, um, on this uh, aquifer that took 10,000 years to fill. It, 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 uh, powers of ACs that are mentioned in the Bible. And it's a big aquifer. And they decided they wanted to get in the wheat growing business. And so they did. And they drained most of the aquifer dry. And now they, it's empty. It's 80% empty. And so they desalinate their water, but they, they, uh, so what they do instead, and the Saudis, I'm not picking on them, because this is done a lot, is they come to places like uh, Arizona and they buy land with water rights. They pump all that water out. They grow alfalfa, which is such a thirsty crop. It's illegal to grow in, in Saudi Arabia. And then they ship the alfalfa back to Saudi Arabia. And so that's virtual water. They, they basically, you, and it's done all over like, um, Citrus from Morocco is a lot of water, virtual water that gets shipped. Anybody who exports beef is exporting virtual water. And so 
So you just start when you see these tags that say, you know, it took 820 gallons of water to make this hamburger or whatever. You have to say, well, where did the cow live? If the cow lived in Oregon and, and, and ate grass, then it's no big deal. They'll drain 38 million gallons out of a reservoir so many peas in it. But if it's some Saudi cow that, like, they didn't grow the alfalfa in Arizona out of an aquifer that's being pumped dry there. it's a, And so all of a sudden, you, you get to this point where people are like, I kind of just want to know what to do. I, I mean... And, 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 I, and I don't want to tell people that in the book. Like, that isn't for me. What my job is, is to say, here's this entire system, and you kind of have to figure out what's valuable to you and what's meaningful to you, and you have to kind of, you know, figure out uh, how to act according to that. Yeah, no, that's a great point. You know, you're, you're I mean, we've been inundated, and, and this is called, like, we, I call it the tyranny of 10%, right, where we take something that happens in 10% of the time, and we tyrannize the 90% of the population over a fact, right? And it's because it's a, it's, it's a correct statistic, but in the big scheme of things, it's not a systemic view, right? And one of the things that you're doing in this book is really talking about a systems approach, trying to understand the interactions between things, right? And, and that's, that's a very interesting approach. Like what systems have you looked at across this book? And then of course, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, were, were these, why people miss that? Because we focus in on a very narrow area, miss the whole picture. Well, I, I mean, I don't know an easy answer to that question. It's kind of like the, the the drinking straw ban, right? Like one day you wake up and drinking straws, which are reasonably inconsequential in, in, in the plastic litter world compared to all these other things, they become the thing that I guess people focus on. And I hope that's what this book tries to do. It says, well, let's, let's talk about plastic. Like where does it come from and where is it all? How much do we make and how is it disposed of and, and, and it's, a, it's like the, the bags, the little plastic baggies. They use, on average, in, um, in Amsterdam, the average person uses four a year. The average American uses 400 a year. Uh, and you have to say, well, why is that? I mean, there are reasons for it. And then you kind of have to figure out why, and maybe you learn from it. I don't, I don't know. The, like I said, the book is fundamentally just trying to identify these things and, and say how they operate and, and where their inefficiencies. The one... The one thing that comes up again and again, it's the one thing that I kind of reject in the book is, um, you know, we're often in those stories, Ray, we're often the villains. Like you think of Thanos, you know, he kills everybody because people just multiply too much. Or do you think of the matrix where they say, you know, humans are diseases or you think of, um, oh, what was that Samuel L. Jackson movie where he played Valentine, uh, Kingsman, where, Kingsman, you know, yeah. he decides to kill half the people because so the other half can live better. And you do get this undertone that somehow we're the problem, that humans are inherently viruses and that we're, and I, I don't accept that. I think if, if we are the problem, we are also the solution. And that is where technology and artificial intelligence and all of that come in because we're one, you know, big breakthrough away from a new kind of energy. We're one big breakthrough away from being able to sequester carbon. We're one big breakthrough away from, desalinating water cheaper. Um, and so I think we're actually the solution to all, all of these problems. But it begins with understanding why they're there and not just vilifying some single activity. Yeah, my, my last question, Byron, I, I saw a very successful venture capitalist tweet uh, recently, the first trillionaire is gonna be in the climate change space and he's a technology VC. You're a technology optimist. Uh, so do you believe technology will ultimately help solve 
uh, all these examples of waste that are shocking that you just shared with us? Absolutely. And I don't think that takes a particularly difficult leap of faith. I mean, you just have to think about how bad it used to be, right? Like how inefficient everything used to be before we even started knowing these things and counting them. And, um, and so I think we've come a long way in a, in a relatively short amount of time. And, and I do think technology is the path out of it. So absolutely. In the end, it's a book about hope. I mean, it, it says, you know, the beginning of uh, the beginning of wisdom is to call things by their true names. And it, it, it's a book that tried to identify the true names of what's, you know, how, how this all works. Is this your new path? Are you going to be doing more scientific-oriented books in the future, or technology? No, actually, my next book is about uh, seeing the future, how humans learn to see into the future. That doesn't surprise me as one of the most uh, uh, you know, respected futurists we've had on our show. So that's well, look at Ray. His book isn't out yet. He's already on his next book. Like, you know, he doesn't no, waste I, I any told time. You, like, you got to write the book when you're when the book is in. Like my book was submitted in July and like it's coming out this July. I should be writing the next book. I'm totally what yeah, am I doing? Yeah, so yeah, don't waste time. All right, well, hey, make sure time. you check out the book. It's wasted, it's available. I believe is it June 1st when the book's out? Is that okay? June 1st is the pub day. Get it on Amazon pre-order it now and more importantly byron thanks for being on the show sharing your okay. insights always fascinating we're here with byron reese entrepreneur author of wasted and of course you can follow him on twitter at b-y-r-o-n-r-e-e-s-e fact-filled data-filled and more importantly it's going to blow your mind on all your assumptions so the freakonomics of waste here we go thanks minds. thank you so much byron. thanks guys yeah terrific ray one of the smartest Guess we have on the show. I'm I hope he stays you, afterwards time, so we can talk to him in the green room. Every awesome. time we, yeah. we talk to him, <laughs> I realize how little I know, uh, which is just not a cool feeling, but I love it. <laughs> I'm feeling like this right now. I'm like, <laughs> all right, listen, we all know that the spark can come from you, but the heat, the flame, and the energy has to come from communities that you're a part of. And that's our next topic. Rachel Friesen, Head of Community Advocacy at Page of Duty. Rachel is Head of Community and Advocacy at Page of Duty, focusing on advocating on behalf of DevOps community. What an incredible, important community. Rachel's professional background is in open source communities, and it has solidified her passion for community development. Uh, so Rachel strongly believes that the importance of inclusive and accessible technology and the resiliency of teams are equally important as resiliency of systems. You can follow Rachel on Twitter at R-A-C-H-F-R-I-E-E-E. -E -E. There's three E's. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome, Rachel. Welcome, Rachel, to Disrupt TV. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Hey, we're you, really you, excited to have you here. Well, oh, good. Yeah. I'm just, would, would you able to, Ray and I failed miserably with Byron's questions uh, in terms of how little <laughs> we know about, you know, waste. And hopefully we're going to learn as much about how to successfully build a community. Go ahead, Ray. Yeah, no, I, I think it's really important, right? We've we've always traditionally seen like, you know, anything in marketing or anything in engineering or anything in product, right? Build out their piece. They've done a great job and then nothing to bring it all together once it's done, right? And then this is what's been interesting about communities. So what are you seeing as you know, important methods, important approaches to building strong communities? Yeah, I think like uh, I've never seen community quite in as much demand as it has been since COVID hit. Uh, you can definitely see a, a huge uptick in interest, not only like in positions that are out there, but things that uh, topics and trends that are coming out of growth uh, strategies. 
And so our team has been even more involved in trying to make those connections to the trends and the, the issues that our community has uh, and advocating for them internally at PagerDuty. A lot of what we do is uh, being able to kind of shine a spotlight on the neat things that are happening out in the community and help validate those and uh, share them with other community members. That's amazing. And, you know, uh, we talked about with our first guest CEO and he reminded us that, you know, uh, a year ago around this time, the world went decentralized and we could only engage digitally and how difficult it, it was for him to correctly assess the right competence and character in terms of recruiting digitally. Uh, so, you know, give advice to leaders in terms of how can they reach their remote employees and uh, make them feel like that they're part of a larger team, part of a community. How do we overcome this, you know, this uh, this world that we've been a part of? And hopefully, given the fantastic success we're seeing with the vaccine distribution, we won't be as challenged as we are this time next year in terms of how we reach employees. But in the immediate future, what can leaders do to better engage with their remote stakeholders? Yeah, I mean, I think like one of the radical benefits of this uh, kind of mass movement towards every as many people being remote is that there's been a huge increase in empathy for remote employees. So uh, I feel really lucky that PagerDuty had a lot of remote employees before the pandemic hit. Actually, my entire team is remote. We're fully distributed. Uh, so for us, when that change went into effect, it was much less disruptive for us than it was for some of the other teams that were primarily based in person and in offices. Um, so I think like hopefully this empathy will lead towards really kind of um, leading inclusive policies and practices going forth. Like Grant was speaking a bit about like the, the energy and the, the impact of gathering in person. And I think that that will return quickly. Um, I I've, At the beginning of the pandemic, people were like, oh, in-person events are dead. We're never having these massive conferences again. I just don't think that's true. I think uh, there's something unique that happens when you come together, whether it's with people at a conference or your team or the broader organization. And uh, I think everybody's pretty eager for that to come back. For sure. Yeah. For sure. It is. There's something interesting about you know, pulling people into, you know, out of remote team burnout, right? And getting that yeah. commitment strong. Um, and you're, you're talking about it. You're seeing it. Uh, what, what is, let's start with what is remote team burnout? Because some people have been massively distributed um, and they don't have the burnout, but they're doing things to make it easier. And a lot of folks are starting to feel it because it's the first time they've gone through having this remote team burnout. So how do you keep that commitment strong? What are things you can do to re-engage, revigorate folks into, um, you know, they're, they're, they're esprit de corps inside their companies. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most important things with burnout in general is just really understanding the different components of it. I actually was just reading a great book by Emily and Amelia uh, Nagoski about burnout, and uh, they kind of do a great job of breaking it into stages. So there's that emotional exhaustion, you know, you're fatigued, you're caring so much, and things are just really hard. Uh, and especially with the pandemic, you know, you don't get that relief, like this is an ongoing crisis, right? And crises tend to fuel burnout. Um, I think also people feel a little futile, like it's hard to see the end goal. They're not sure when things are going to go back to normal. It's like, what does this matter? Um, and then, you know, there's that that third stage where you're starting to really um, have your empathy and your caring depleted. So people are having a hard time. They're getting stuck in emotions. They're not really like going through that full process of dealing with the things that are arising. Uh, and that definitely happens whether you're in person or remote. For uh, my remote teams, uh, I work really hard to stay in tune with things that are popping up kind of as we go, but also kind of broader group trends. You know, a lot of what I try to do is building a psychologically safe culture so people can say like, hey, I'm just having a really hard day or I'm having a hard week or, uh, you know, there's things that I'm not sure how to move forward on or I'm not feeling connected to like what our mission is. 
Um, so I try to really kind of keep it uh, open for them to voice those issues. Uh, we're all kind of, uh, like Grant mentioned earlier, it was a multidimensional crisis. I think that's very true. Like yeah, as much definitely. as we want people to just show up and, and do, do the work, uh, they're bringing a whole lot of other sides to their life, uh, to the workday. So uh, we do a lot of fun stuff to, to kind of keep people happy and engaged too on our team. We do virtual volunteering. Uh, we do like trivia things. We do things to kind of make it fun. And so that even though we're distributed, we feel like we have a real, we do have real connections with our teammates. It's such an important point that uh, yeah. because we're living through it and we've been in this mode for over a year, but yeah. in our lifetime, you know, you have health crisis that led to economic crisis, racial inequality crisis, misinformation crisis, uh, climate change crisis with the floods and the fires and the, you know, and this all happened concurrently. Yeah. So, um, and then of course you have to adjust to this no work construct. So it's it's uh, so important to use the word empathy in, in terms of describing the, the uh, importance and maybe the silver lining in terms of the impact of the pandemic. It allowed us to be a little bit more mindful, a little bit more graceful, a little bit more flexible about how we deal with each other. In your bio, I mentioned your advocacy and passion for open source community. What's the purpose of that passion that you have? Why does it matter? And 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 what's unique about, and how do you usefully uh, and, um, and successfully build an engagement strategy when it comes to an open source oriented community? I mean, I think that definitely depends on the community, the open source community that you're working with as far as like your your strategy or your approach. I think, you know, I started my my career in tech with a, a large open source community and uh, it's really impactful to see how people throughout the world can come together to build something together or to contribute back. Uh, and that could be to the code itself or towards bringing other people along. You know, it's really about things being open and accessible and it removes those barriers that inherently exist in tech. Um, there's still barriers there, but it makes it a little bit easier. Um, and I think, you know, being open source, uh, communities inherently need to provide that education to find ways to mentor people along. So it really kind of, uh, kind of brings out the best in, in kind of some community principles. Um, so I think like, you know, depending on whatever your your objectives could be, like there, there's different ways to engage those those communities and pull them in as a part of the process. Uh, I think too, like, you know, open source communities tend to have a lot of uh, really active champions. So they're, they're people that you want to want to listen to because they're they're in there. They're using your stuff all the time and they're they yeah. they have great insights and they have skin in the game. Yeah, you know, they're, they're yeah. producing products that others are using and the world yeah. is reciprocating. So the overall quality of their co-creation has high degree of interdependency. So it absolutely makes sense. And uh, any company that wants to scale in any way needs to really uh, have an open source strategy, in, in my opinion. Go ahead, Ray, yeah. sorry. <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, talking too about like some of the things we do at PagerDuty, like we try to open source as many of our best practices as possible. You know, our product is built upon uh, incident response. So we share how we do incident response at PagerDuty. We make it all open so that anyone can take that and use that at their company or with their teams and, and hopefully make that that team life a little bit better. Yeah. Absolutely. So, hey, you know, related to this, right, we're also seeing some things in terms of, you know, getting out of crisis mode, right? Yeah. So we're, either we've adjusted to this and it's like no longer a crisis, though it still feels like one, right? Or, you know, we're getting to the point where, you know, how do we, how do we get ahead of future issues? Um, I think we're starting to rethink how we work with our, you know, workforce, right? Human capital is the most important capital and we realize that. So what's changing and how are people addressing these issues ahead of time before they become big issues? 
Yeah, I mean, I think like the number one thing is you have to be plugged into like what those leading indicators are. So it could be different for a digital system than your team that supports that system. So as a leader, like you really need to know like uh, where are, are my hotspots? Where are things that are indicating there could be a bigger kind of pitfall ahead? Um, and knowing, you know, when to escalate that. Like uh, for me, it's like, I really want to make sure I can, t I, I have a general sense of like who on the team is like, kind of maybe nearing that burnout stage, like we mentioned earlier, or uh, are just really in demand or for calls, teams that are on call, for example, you you may wanna know like, oh, this person got paged at 2 a.m. That's terrible. <laughs> and, then, and then it happened the next day. So uh, that's someone that you'd wanna like reach out to and, and really make sure that they get a little bit of relief. So it's like, I think, you know, 2020 was the year of like unpredictable strain on our systems, on our teams, on kind of our organizations in general. And I yep, think as yep. we start to see that easing uh, come back of like, oh, things are gonna slightly go back to normal. That's gonna be a whole new wave of unpredictability. Like we don't know exactly how that's gonna roll out. And it's not gonna be like, you just snap your fingers and, and wake up and things are, you know, like they were in February, 2020. So. Uh, it's going to be a whole nother, <laughs> whole nother phase of, of learning and testing and, and iterating. Uh, we've had Rachel on our show, number of guests that have shared research with us um, throughout last year and this year during the pandemic that for companies to be smarter, uh, more adaptable, more uh, empathetic, more collaborative, they simply need more women leaders. Uh, if they can yep. just focus on promoting, celebrating, sponsoring more women leaders, we can achieve goodness on multiple dimensions. March is International Women's Month. Uh, Monday was International Women's Day. So for our, for our listeners, our audience, what are some steps uh, that women in technology can take to position themselves to have successful careers such as yourself? That's a great question. I mean, for me, like, I, I think it ultimately comes back to uh, continually being in a position of wanting to learn and wanting to grow, because I, I feel like the more I can understand about the things that are adjacent to my role, the better I can partner with other internal stakeholders, or when you're talking about the community, the better I can advocate for the things that also contribute to their, uh, their needs. And I think like, as a woman leader, like, you have to really understand, like, that in order to kind of step up and lead, like you have to kind of be comfortable being a little uncomfortable. Uh, mm. Brene Brown has a ton of great research around this, but like, you know, you have to be brave and be a little vulnerable to speak up and uh, say like, hey, there may be a better way of doing something uh, or try it at this way. And so um, I think that that's something that I've definitely grown in confidence with over time. Um, and then as my position of being a bit of a leader within our organization, I try to really elevate others. So like if I'm getting uh, the kudos for something that I know others on the team really contributed to, I try to always like redistribute that uh, that praise or that acknowledgement and make sure that that other people are aware because I think especially, uh, you know, in larger organizations and growing organizations, um, people are quick to, to reference things to people they know or, or things that they see uh, most recently, but there's often so many people contributing to uh, new initiatives or projects and, I uh, just really want to make sure that that they get the opportunities uh, to shine and uh, as well. Great advice. And Brené Brown's uh, Trust Equation based on demonstrating vulnerability and advocacy. Great, great book, great reference. Watch her TED Talk. She's fantastic. Go ahead, yeah. Ray. Yeah. Ray, you're on oh, Ray, mute. Ray, you're on mute. <laughs> yeah. 
Or I think you're on mute. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, no. Watch the TED Talk, and I think it's really awesome. Yeah, you yeah, want to uh, yeah. definitely see that. But hey, let's let's take a step back. What advice would you give your younger self, right? Uh, given what you've learned, what you've seen. Sorry for the tough headed. question. That yeah. is always a tough question. <laughs> you know, First of all, I would tell you the younger say, self, you, you know, know nothing. <laughs> would, you, would you have gone into tech? Would you have like done something differently? Would you have said, hey, this is a bad field. Uh, I need a mentor. I'm like, where, where would you go in this one? You know, I, this kind of ties into my last response, but like try new things. Like I, I definitely got to where I am because I wasn't, I didn't hesitate to try out stuff that was new or cutting edge. And, you know, back when I was starting my career, that was like search engine optimization, for example, like that was just becoming a thing. And so I was like, I want to learn more about this. And so I kind of became, you know, the kind of steered my career a little bit in that direction. Um, so I think that, you know, trying out new stuff, especially when you're younger in your career, uh, you can, you can discover things that you didn't even know you were good at. Um, I also like one thing I do is I keep a, a journal next to my desk, which sounds a little odd, but as I'm learning more things about myself and the things that I like to do or the projects I get lost in, there you go. Uh, the things that I get lost in because I'm like really enjoying the work, I try to note that down. And so, uh, I think as I've matured, I just have really like learned to trust my gut. Like if there's things that don't feel like a good fit, uh, or if there are things that aren't feeling right, uh, feeling confident to like speak up or, or choose a different path. Uh, and, and really like, you know, relying upon that expertise that I've, I've cultivated over the, the last, I don't even want to say how many years of, of work. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Intellectual curiosity. Yeah. yeah. I was yeah. going to say, so I was say it's also interesting, right? I mean, if you think about, you know, what, there are certain things that you have, you might've partaked in that, you know, like you bumped into a group or you met someone new or you actually had a new conversation and it does all come back. Yeah. Right? I mean, think about it, like all the things that you thought were like, no, nah, I'll just check this out. They'll never amount to anything. <laughs> you never know. It all comes back and you're like, wow, how does that it's work out? It's amazing how wrong I was when I was younger <laughs> about you're, so many oh things. God, I'm still, well, I'm still it's, wrong. I mean, and it's, yeah. it's hard to take a risk. It's hard to take, yeah. it's hard to take that risky choice when you're, you're maybe looking at something that's a little more stable or a little bit more like solid. And so trying those new things, like you never know where it's going to lead. And so uh, you can try that stuff out. And then if you're like, oh, this isn't right, like you can go somewhere else and try something different. You know, what inspires us and one of the reasons Ray and I do this weekly basis is when we listen to Grant or Byron yourself. I mean, look at Byron. He decided to write a science book on waste. And he's, <laughs> you know, and he's one of the foremost authorities in AI and he's a futurist. He's and a best-selling author in yeah. tech. Um, so staying teachable, especially on topics that are completely orthogonal to what his prior work and, and and your career path in terms of continuously trying to build that sense of response by deep engagement with your community so you can help your shape and the direction of your company, it is, it's, it's remarkable. So it's great advice, you know, stay teachable, stay curious, have the passion of an explorer as John Hagel, one of our prior guests mentioned to Ray and I. These are all important lessons that I think you don't necessarily learn in school. Uh, it, it's along yeah. the you know life's journey. So really appreciate your reflection on what you would uh, say to your younger self. I thought that was a hard question, but you <laughs> had a brilliant answer. Very <laughs> good. So, anyways, yeah. Though here, here we are. I mean, Rachel Friesen, head of community and advocacy at Pager Duty. If you haven't know who they are, they are an incident response um, uh, product, and of course, uh, your CEO Jennifer. I think she's still CEO, right? She does awesome yeah. work. I see her on TV all the time. More importantly, you can follow her on Twitter at R A C H F R I Triple E. So got that one. <laughs> so thanks a lot for being on the show. Happy Friday! Thanks, yeah, I hope to see you back. Cheers. Thank yeah. You. Thanks. Uh, 
What uh, happened? What, what, a, what, a, <laughs> what a diversity of topics from financial planning analysis and future of work to how little you and I know about waste. Anything or about anything. <laughs> or anything. <yeah. laughs> By the way, no more guests asking us questions. I felt really small. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I have no problem letting you know. I thought I know a lot until I learned a little. And then, of course, uh, Rachel talking about every company. Every company needs to, again, I said it, the spark can come from your company, but the flames, the heat, and the energy for sustained momentum and growth has to come from the community. And my company, we just celebrated our 22-year anniversary on the 8th, learned the importance of community building from the get-go. So Parker and yes. Mark uh, are two champions of community when Salesforce was a company of two, and now we're 56,000. And uh, we have this unquenchable thirst for growing and listening and engaging with our community. So important topic, really important topic. Thank you, Rachel. So we got some really interesting things coming up. We got a special <laughs> edition and yeah, episode yeah. 228 looks like power packed. Like, who, wow, what's going yeah. on here? Yeah. So um, I think our producers like amped everything up on us. Yeah, absolutely. So on, on the 18th, on, the, on Thursday, upcoming Thursday, we have a special edition episode with Tom Peters. Tom Peters on the 15th uh, next week will launch his final book, his 19th book, Excellence Now, Extreme Humanism. And uh, Tom has sold, uh, his books have sold uh, over 10 million copies uh, 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 the prior 18. And this is his masterpiece and his final book. So we're gonna talk to Tom about extreme humanism and excellence now. That's a special 45 minute episodes on the 18th. Uh, follow Ray and myself and uh, the Shark TV show on Twitter and you'll get more details, but it's at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard, uh, 9 a.m. Pacific on the 18th. And then the following day is episode, well, I guess 229, but we can call it 228. We don't number our special episodes. We're probably over 300 episodes. But anyway. Episode, I figure this yeah. out. Like, I don't know why we don't figure it out by the number. Uh, <laughs> All those Davos episodes are probably like yeah, not numbered yeah. either. Yeah. Yeah. We Honestly, we've done more than 228 episodes, but for whatever reason, we decided to be hard on ourselves. We're humble. We're humble. Episode, We're humble. Episode 228 uh, uh, is Scott Galloway who's the author of Post-Corona and two other best-selling books. Uh, and he's an incredible influencer. Yeah, the big uh, four, talk to I him. The yeah, the big four. I actually have his books four. behind the me four. on the shelf the four. <laughs> Yeah, The Algebra of Happiness, The Four, and um, Post-Corona. Those are the three books. We have Mary Hamilton, who's the managing director at Accenture. Mary's going to share and cover Ooh, research. It's going to be a lot of innovation. So, she runs the a innovation. A lot of innovation. Yeah. A, a lot of innovation. And then Martin Lindstrom, author of Ministry of Common oh, wow. Sense. Episode 228 is is uh, you bring a popcorn, sit back, take a lot of notes because it's going to get on be your Peloton, pleasure. listen in. I mean, it'll be <laughs> yeah, awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And we'll do high fives as you're listening if you're, for those Peloton users. Uh, so, Ray, closing remarks on uh, Grant uh, Byron and and uh, our incredible uh, uh, final guest talking about communities, Rachel. Yeah, you know, we're one year in on the uh, pandemic. I, I think, you know, we're starting to make those adjustments. I think we're going to see a very, very different world in front of us. And, uh, you know, it's it's going to make us stronger. And so it's good to see, you know, people are, you know, are progressing. People are moving on. People are finding new ideas. People are, you know, champion new causes. And uh, I think that's that's going to be what it's about going forward. Uh, I hope we get to a roaring 20s because uh, the beginning's been a little awkward. So but maybe we'll <laughs> kick it up. Maybe we'll look back nine years from now and say, hey, this is pretty cool. So we got yeah. out of it and everyone survived and uh, we all got strong. 
stronger. So, so I think that's where I'm at. What about you? So, I'm hoping that you and I get our first vaccine shot at some point. And, uh, oh, no, no, no. We're in like group like 73. Well, they've herd immunity by the time they get to us. Don't yeah, worry about I, I just, I'm just, I'm hopeful that that happens in the near future because I can't wait to break bread with you and many of our guests who, you know, luckily you and I uh, meet a lot of our guests in person at your yeah. events, at my company's event, at conferences. So, just about probably 80% of the guests we have on the show, we actually had the good fortune of meeting in person under normal circumstances. And that hasn't happened over the past year. So again, we've interviewed 700 guests over the last year and so probably 150 guests. And typically we meet those people in person. And I, I'm hoping that that can be part of our future routine because that is the best part. It is. And that's where we find a lot of our guests. So once we get to the conference season back again, it'll be fun to do that. Hey, everybody, thanks for being here. Welcome to Disrupt TV show and goodbye. Have a great Friday. And more importantly, 11 a.m. Pacific live uh, every Friday. You'll see us taping uh, for Disrupt TV. So thanks a lot, everyone. Bye.